0: All right, we're going to start with a little pop quiz this morning, okay? In that passage of scripture we just heard read, we covered 12 verses, all right? One particular word was repeated nine times in those 12 verses. Did anyone catch what it was? Glory. glory. Golf clap for you. Good job. Whoever just said that. Good job. Yes, good job. Nice work. Yes, we see the word glory nine times, but we also see a similar word four times, which is the word glorious. Glorious. Okay, a key principle whenever we're reading the Bible, a key strategy is looking for repetition. Looking for repeated phrase, repeated words, things like that. Because when we see that happen, the author is trying to get us to pay attention, right? The, the author is trying to maybe tell us that this is going to be really important. And we use repetition in our lives, don't we? When remembering names, uh, directions for where we're going, information we need to recall. And no matter what, sometimes we just say that person's name like 20 times. Next time you see them, it's hey, bud, right? You don't, you don't remember. <laughs> but, but we try, don't you know? we? We try. Well, in the message today, or in that passage today, we see that word glory. The Greek word there is the word doxa. And, and what that word is getting at is that it's magnificent, preeminent, supreme. Pastor Gary Millar describes the word glory in this way. I think it's helpful. He says, glory is a small word which carries huge significance. It is all the godness of God packed into two syllables and from that word glory we get other words right we get the word glorious uh, being worthy of admiration we get the word glorify acknowledging or, or revealing something glorious and these are all words that are familiar to us right we use these words a lot and if we have a great vacation that we desperately needed when we come back and people say how was it we say it was glorious yes a couple of weeks ago Kansas City Chiefs they won the Super Bowl and everyone said they had their moment of glory Right? We glorify things in our lives that we desire or that we want for ourselves. Maybe it's material things sometimes or an experience or a career bump. But as I read the passage this week, as I saw that word glory and the word glorify over and over again, I was reminded that what we find glorious often changes who we become. What we reflect to the world is often a picture of what we worship. We're in this series here going through 2 Corinthians and going through, it's called Cruciformed. And in this passage, these 12 verses this morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul do two things. He's going to spend a significant amount of time comparing the old covenant with the new covenant, and we're going to jump into that. But then he's going to share what the blessings of living in this new covenant are, a more glorious covenant that he calls it. And in this, in this passage, we're also going to see that what we look at with the most admiration is what we become the most like in our lives. Meaning that the more we look at Jesus, the more like him we become. So if you have your Bibles with you, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your cruciform journals, open up to page 32. Uh, We're actually going to be starting in verse 6, which is the last verse that we had last week. So you can kind of, if you're in your journal, you can pick it up at verse 7. And just a word of warning today, I'm going to be jumping around the text a lot. Okay, so if you have your journals with you, I'd really encourage you to write down the scripture references that you see. Uh, There's some longer passages of scripture. I'd really encourage you to write them down so you can reference them a little bit later in the week if you want to dive into some future study um, of this passage, but also some related passages. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Paul writes this, he has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For the ministry that brought condemnation had glory. The ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. Okay, what is going on? (laughs) <laughs> in this passage, if you got lost, that's okay. We're gonna we're gonna pick it apart and break it down. And also, if you're a fan of charts, there's one coming. All right, hold on your seat. Yeah, it's coming. Um, but but in this passage, Paul is comparing two different things. He's comparing the old covenant and the new covenant. And to really understand that, we're gonna have to take a detour out of Second Corinthians into some other passages. We have to answer this question: What is a covenant? Well, in the Bible, a covenant was an intimate relational contract between two people or two parties. Like in hearing those words, right, what comes to mind for us is maybe a promise. Right, you make a promise to someone, uh, it's more significant than just saying yes. Right, because it, it, just, it feels weightier. If you break a promise, right, there, there is some, some hardship there or there's some frustration with somebody. And a covenant is similar, but it's even more significant than a promise. Because there is a relationship surrounding this contract or this agreement that people are entering into together. Throughout the Bible, we see God enter into covenants with people. If you, you see this throughout the Old Testament. He, there was a Noaic covenant or an Abrahamic covenant or a Mosaic covenant, which we're going to get into. And these covenants, they could be one of two things. They could be conditional or they could be unconditional. A conditional covenant, covenant what that meant was that, that it was dependent upon the people and in, in, in their actions in the covenant. You could break it by not following through. But an unconditional covenant was a covenant that God would make with people, and there's nothing they could do to mess it up. God was going to fulfill his end in an unconditional covenant. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is referencing the Mosaic covenant, or what he calls the Old Covenant. In the book of Exodus, God gave Moses uh, and the people of Israel 613 laws that they were to live by. And if they obeyed, there would have been blessing. But if they broke it, there would have been cursing. So what kind of covenant was that? It was conditional, right? And what we see over and over again in the Old Testament is they failed at keeping it. They they, they sinned all the time. They could not keep the old covenant law perfectly. But Paul here begins to talk about a new covenant, And a new covenant suggests something old, right? We get this. If you have a car that you really love, but then you get a new car, that car that was once new that you loved, it's your old car. Now, because something else has come that's better, that's newer, right? This is kind of what Paul is getting at. So what is the new covenant? Well, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews really gets into this. uh, Hebrews 8 through 10. We're only going to read some of Hebrews chapter 8. But it is a great place to go if you want to learn more about the New Covenant. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I thought it said said my name. Um, But so we did a series through the book of Hebrews about four years ago. And if you want to, if this is kind of piquing your interest, like what we're reading about in just a moment, go dive back into these messages because we go into it in much more depth. But Hebrews 8, or Hebrews, was written by someone we don't really know, but it was written to Jewish Christians, and it gets into this New Covenant, all right? Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6 says this, Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, old covenant, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, see the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. We just learned about that. Conditional, right? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Okay, this could be an entire sermon in itself, but it's just going to be a couple minutes. This is a lot, but it's describing this new covenant. But There's a really important answer, or a really important question we need to answer to. Who was this new covenant with? We see it twice in the text. The house of Israel, the Jewish people, those that God had made the old covenant with. This group of people that God had given the law to outside of them in this new covenant ushered in by Jesus will now have the law written inside of them, into their minds, onto their hearts. We've already seen similar language in 2 Corinthians, right? Last week, if you were here, this idea of living letters, not being written on tablets of stone, but being written on the tablets of what? Human hearts. Okay. That leaves us with a question, if you're, if you're tracking with, with where I'm going. If we are not Jewish, which many of us are not, how does this apply to us? Thankfully, we have other scripture that helps us understand this. Paul answers this in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to jump around these verses a little bit, but it's, it's important for us to go here. Romans 11, starting in verse 13. Now, I'm speaking to you. Gentiles. Gentiles, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, all right? I'm speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am able to, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection, meaning the Jews, brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life From the dead, verse 17. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you Gentiles, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them, and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. Verse 24. For if you were cut off from your natural, native wild olive tree, and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own? Olive tree. Okay, verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. All right. What did Paul just say? A lot about plants. (laughs) Right? He's giving us a picture. But beginning in this time and continuing up to this day, there has been a partial hardening of Israel. Some Jews believe. Right? They become Christians. But some Jews don't. And this is getting at until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. This is the reality. Until every non-Jewish person becomes a Christian, this is the reality. God still has a plan for the Jews. But what does that mean for us? Well, if you're a Gentile Christian, meaning a non-Jewish follower of Jesus, you are that wild olive branch grafted in. You share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Okay, this is what this means for us in the new covenant. If you're a Christian, you get the promises of God. You're a beneficiary of the new covenant, even as a non-Jewish person. That's why we can read about the new covenant and treasure it and partake of its blessings. That's why Paul can talk about it to the Corinthian Christians in this way. All right, long detour, we're back. 2 Corinthians 3, let's get back to it. Paul compares these two covenants, old and new. And to help us see this, I have a chart for you. All right, here we go. Old covenant on the left. It was glorious, right? It was of the letter. The letter kills. It was a ministry that brought death. It was chiseled in letters on stones. We see that in the book of Exodus. It came with glory. It brought condemnation. And it once had been glorious, but isn't any longer. So when you look at the left side of that chart... What do you notice about some of the words? It seems negative, right? Like what's going on there? The letter kills. Ministry that brought death. It brought condemnation. Why? Well, because the people couldn't keep the law. They broke the law all the time. The old covenant was meant to reveal their sin. It was meant to show them their need for a Savior. And it was this Savior that ushered in a new covenant, like the thing, the, what we see on the right. A more glorious covenant. It was of the Spirit. It wasn't outside. It was inside. It gives life, brings righteousness, written on human heart. It's more glorious than the old. Paul says this explicitly in the next verses. Verse 10. In fact, what had been glorious, it's not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Even though the old covenant wasn't lasting, it was still glorious. Why? Well, it revealed who God was, it revealed his character, it revealed how to worship him, but it wasn't any longer. Because something else came that was better. We understand this idea of something more glorious coming after something else, right? Seventy years ago, back in 1954, RCA came out with this amazing piece of technology, okay, that was going to revolutionize the lives of the American people. And this technology in 1954, it costed $1,000, okay? That equivalent today, $11,000, if you were in, if you were a family in 1954, your average household income, about $4,000. So if you bought this technology I'm about to show you, 25% of your annual income, okay, that's significant. But if you could purchase this, you were set. You ready? Here it is. This is the, wait, RCA CT100. Everyone go, ooh, I know right? That is like looking at the glory of the Lord on Moses' face, isn't it? I mean, like, now I know you're all wondering, how big is that screen? I mean, like, that is huge. I can just tell you, 15-inch screen, ladies and gentlemen, right here. That is how big that is. Yeah, it's helpful reference, the puppy and everything right here. Um, Now, it had two dials for programming, okay? Not just one like your neighbor's TV, And it had backwards compatibility, so you could watch black and white shows still. Okay? This, if you had it, was amazing. Seventy years ago, glorious technology. Three weeks ago, this piece of technology became available for pre-order. This is the Apple Vision Pro. Um, It's a virtual reality headset that you can wear, and you can change the size of the screen by doing this. That is all you have to do. And there I have a picture here of a gentleman who has done this. Everyone needs that, right? I mean, like, you need a movie theater-sized screen in your living room. Now, when we see this, oh, by the way, not even close to $11,000. Okay, this is way cheaper than that even. But when we see that and we look back at the RCA CT100, it's not glorious anymore at all. we get it why is that not glorious because of something else that has surpassed it the apple vision pro see this is the picture of what we have from the old and new covenant the old covenant that god gave the israelites it came with glory it was a gift it revealed the holiness of god it was much needed clarity of who god was what he expected of his people what a life of worship looked like, but that glory didn't compare to what God would do in the future, in the new covenant. The greater glory of the ministry of the Spirit, of how God is no longer outside of us. He, he moves in. The Spirit moves in and changes you and transforms you. He continues on in verse 13. Here, where he says this, we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It's not lifted, because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In Exodus 34, Moses came down from Mount Sinai after he had received the law from God. And when he came down, his face was glowing. And not glowing in the way where you see someone who's just had a really good day. It's like, wow, you are, you're just glowing. Like, no, Moses was glowing. You ever looked at the sun? It hurts. That was Moses' face. It was like a floodlight on the people. And they were freaking out. They're like, I, we can't look at you. So after Moses spoke, he he put this veil over his face. He covered his face to protect the people from the glory of God. And this verse is saying that we're not like Moses as the glory is reflected. He also says that the minds of the Israelites were hardened, which means they were not able to see the purpose of the old covenant, how it revealed their sinfulness and their need for God to save them. And that has continued to this day jewish people in paul's time they were hearing the gospel and they were not believing it because their minds were hardened they had a veil over their hearts to this day paul says at the reading of the old covenant which is the law the veil remains it's not lifted why because it is only set aside in one way by christ only as people Turn to Jesus; is that veil removed, and they can see God clearly, but also themselves clearly. In the next chapter, we're actually going to see this more fleshed out. Paul's going to go, uh, keep going with this idea, and how it that is the same is true for anyone who doesn't believe that Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil of spiritual blindness is removed; they can see. That is why all these signs that Jesus did of giving blind people sight, right? It was, ta- it was a greater picture of how God opens the eyes to see him spiritually. They were signs. We're going to see this more in chapter 4. But Paul takes time in this passage to show how the new covenant, it is more glorious than the old. And in these last two verses, what all this is leading up to, it is a glorious truth as to why does this matter at all? What are are we living in? What, What benefits of the new covenant do we have? They're right here, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If I were to ask you to use one word to describe your Christian life, what word would you use? Think about it for a second. What what word comes to mind? Would it be love, joy, peace, those are all good words, right? Would any of you have used the word freedom? I would argue that this is a word that doesn't often come to mind for us. Or we wouldn't we wouldn't use it because if we're honest, we don't really feel that way in our Christian lives. Maybe because we just feel knocked down by sin, our own sin, people sinning against us. Or maybe in conversations that we have or that we witness like about Jesus or about church or about what we believe. Like it seems like people talk more about what Christianity is against rather than what it's for. I think the cultural perception of Christianity seems to be that life as a follower of Jesus is one of lifeless obedience and restriction instead of joy and peace and freedom. I think this is how Christians are often portrayed in entertainment. Sitcom shows, all all the time. If that is your Christian experience, lifeless obedience, restriction, frustration, we need to look at what Paul says in verse 18. Where are you looking? Where is your focus? Look at what he says. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, that phrase there is looking into a mirror. It only shows up one time in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's this Greek word, katotrizo. Fun word to say. But what that is getting at is a clear picture, a clear reflection. So what is this getting at? As followers of Christ, we have been given the Spirit that is transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. And how does that transform? How does that transformation happen? Where where do we look? As in a mirror, at the glory of the Lord. Like Moses, whose face shone with the glory of God after spending time with him, our lives reflect the glory of God. If you are a Christian, your life is a miracle because you were dead. And you're not anymore you were spiritually dead in your sin but now you are alive in the power of God it's a miracle and you didn't do that by just figuring it out God did that in you we look at the glory of God Hebrews chapter 1 tells us look at what it says the Son Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Exact representation of who he was. He is God. G.K. Beale is a seminary professor and Bible scholar, and he wrote this. He kind of expanded this idea of where we look kind of shapes who we are. And he said this. I think it's really helpful. He says, what you revere, you resemble, either for your ruin or your restoration. I'm going to say that again. What you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. How does that play out in our lives? I think Pastor Bob Thune, he really puts it well when he says, when he he kind of fleshes it out here. He says, when we worship false gods, we become like them. Our worship of money makes us greedy or stingy. Our worship of power makes us harsh and demanding. Our worship of approval makes us anxious And fearful our worship of success makes us busy and restless the more we avert our gaze from the true God and chase these idols the more ungodly we become so what do we do instead well it seems simple right (laughs) instead of looking at those things look at Jesus if you are a Christian You are being transformed into the glory of the Lord from glory to glory. And this is the power of the Spirit in you. And that happens as we continue to look at him. Not at ourselves, not at the things of this world, but to look at Jesus. Earlier I mentioned that what we reflect to the world, it's often a picture of what we worship, right? What we desire what we find valuable, what we glorify, it really reveals what's captured us, what we daydream about, what we want more than anything. Over these past 11 verses, Paul takes time to remind us of how the new covenant was so much better than the old. And the fruit of that is that God is in us, making us more like him, transforming us. These are beautiful realities of living in this new covenant. There's three realities I found explicitly in the text for us today. Two of them are truths to remember, and one is an action to take. Let's start with the truths. Number one, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Is freedom a word that comes to mind when you think about your faith? And if not, why? You're free from the power of sin. You're free from having to prove yourself to other people because of what God has already said about you. You're in Christ. You're one of his children. You have freedom in the joy that comes from you're not making yourself more like Jesus. No, the Spirit's doing that. That word freedom shows up a lot in other places in the scripture. Galatians 5.1 For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you know what that yoke of slavery was that Paul's talking about? The old covenant. There were Jewish Christians who were free in Christ that were trying to go back and live by the law. They didn't have to anymore. They were submitting again to a yoke of slavery, something they could not do. They were free. John 8, 36, if the sun sets you free, you really will be free. Romans 6, but now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. That's the growing up spiritually that God does in us. And the outcome is eternal life. Finally, Romans 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free free from the law of sin and death where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom second truth we are being transformed if you're a christian god will transform you he's already done that and he's sanctifying you just like you see a baby become a little kid and that little kid become a teenager. And that teenager become an adult. That same process happens for anyone who becomes a Christian. If you're a new Christian, fight against that shame that you don't know enough yet. Or that, ah, oh, why is this sin still so prevalent? It's like, you're a baby. You're, you're growing up. But then for many of us who, who have grown and are growing, let's remember God. God is bringing about this. Walk in faith to him. Trust him. Seek the joy that comes from that. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 is a beautiful promise that that God will bring to completion what he has started in you. God is transforming us. Okay, those are the two truths. Now what do we do? Well, in light of the reality that we're free in Christ, that God is changing us, here's what we do. We act with great boldness. This is a verse right in the middle of the passage that I skipped because I wanted to save it for last. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Since then, we have such a hope. This is Paul reflecting on the new covenant. Since then, we have such a hope. We act with great boldness. What does boldness look like for you and your walk with the Lord? If you were to do a word study of that word boldness in the New Testament, you would see that it's always used to describe one of two things. How we live toward others and how we live toward God. What does boldness toward living toward others look like? Well, living with confidence that God is with you. That as you make decisions to live not like the world and live more like the scriptures, that you're bold in sharing why that you share the hope that you have, that you love people that seem unlovable to you, that you care for them, you give yourself to them, living with boldness. Because that's what Jesus did toward us. But how does that work out toward God? Hebrews 4 makes this clear for us. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Jesus is our great high priest a better high priest than who served in the old covenant. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was like us. He was tempted like us, yet was without sin. Therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness. Expect to receive mercy and grace because God will give it to you. These are the realities. These are the truths that we can rest in because of what Jesus has done. Because of the new covenant he ushered in. Through his life, death, and resurrection, we can experience life with God. And when we do that, our lives begin to reflect this more glorious truth. These truths we see in 2 Corinthians 3. We are free in Christ We're being transformed by the Spirit. And finally, we can live with boldness toward God and toward others. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you just for more glorious reality that we get to live in today. God, these passages can feel like a lot sometimes to understand or But God, as we just see in 2 Corinthians over and over again, we're reminded of of who we are. but, But even more than that, God, we're reminded of who you are. How human beings could not fulfill the law perfectly. The old covenant was meant to reveal our need for you. And God, we thank you that you met that need in Jesus God, as we think about our lives as followers of Jesus, if we don't feel free, help us understand why. And just help remind us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're free in Christ. You're making us new. And you're working through us. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.